really couldn't happen to a nicer A&R man. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Moodbeam, the first wearable for the mind, a simple device that lets you log how you feel at the push of a button. Visit us at moodbeam.co.uk to order yours. Together, we can change the way the world sees mood. Hello and welcome back to The Really Cast. For this episode, we're taking a look at what it's really like to work in the music industry. Now, back in the 90s, when I was a young, naive teen, the whole music business seemed to me to be an amazing mix of glamour and anarchy. I guess it depended on what you listened to in order to come to that conclusion, but it just felt massively intriguing to me. However, while I was sitting in my bedroom dreaming of hanging out with Kirk Bain and Courtney Love, there was one teen who had in fact dived headfirst into the business. And it wasn't long before he was working for one of the biggest bands in the world and enjoying the life and status that came with the job. But, and of course there's a but, if life gave you a bit of a shaky start, you're more prone to mental health problems and self-medicating with drugs or alcohol. And if there's one place you can hide these problems, it's a job where it's standard practice to live a life of rock and roll. Of course, the industry has changed massively since then. But for today's interviewee, who goes only by the name of Secret Drug Addict, life spiralled out of control and he lost pretty much everything. Today, however, he's got many years recovery under his belt, a happy family and a passion for campaigning to break the stigma around mental health and addiction, which is why he's agreed to chat to me today for The Really Cast. Okay, so today I'm welcoming someone to the podcast who is known as Secret Drug Addict. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why you've kept your name out of your awareness raising work hi lucy um the main reason i think for being anonymous is i i just feel personally for myself it's better to to not attach my kind of ego to it you know it's it's got i mean it's it's been fairly successful you know i've been Mm. i've only been doing it about a year and a half and in the you know in that time i've had nearly ten thousand followers i get lots of engagement lots of messages from people and I just felt for myself, it was better to remove myself from it and um, and just and just work it kind of as an anonymous account. Mm. You know, I mean, lots, lots of my friends, I mean, all, well, you know, everybody knows me, knows I'm in recovery from addiction. Lots of my friends know that I, I, I run the page and that I am the secret drug addict. But I just feel that the more successful it becomes, the more it kind of feeds my, my ego, my arrogance. So, the, you know, the, the anonymity part of it kind of helps to right size that yeah and that's and that's something that's talked a lot about in 12-step recovery isn't it um the role of the ego um yeah yeah no it is and I think I think it it, it plays a valid part from you know from the very beginnings of of when somebody starts displaying kind of addictive behaviors you know people say I think you're doing you know I think you're drinking too much or I think you're taking drugs too much or whatever it is that you're doing and you kind of go no I'm fine it's fine Mm, you know it's like don't tell me what to do I'm 
I know what I'm doing. Oh, yeah, you know, I mean, right, I'm you know, sure. right to the very, very end, essentially, the whole way through, as you know, as the as as, as the consequences are, are becoming more prevalent and 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 more regular, and people are you know friends, family, whatever, are, are challenging you and saying, you know what, maybe you need to slow down, maybe, and you go, no, I'm fine, it's all right. Mm. I, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, you know, I, 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 you know, my ego would not allow me to to listen to what people are saying and possibly sort of take that on board. Because I knew best. Yeah. And we're going to talk about your experience of addiction and recovery, but also your career, which sounds like it's been fascinating. Um, You worked a lot in the music industry. Could you tell us a bit about your role as an an, an A&R man and what that involved? Uh, Yeah, I I left school at 13 and... Got a job working for working at the management company for the band Reef. Yeah, in the early nineties. So ended up doing my first UK tour. I think I was fourteen, fifteen years old, maybe. Gosh. And then from that, got put forward for a job at Sony. And so it's, I think I was maybe sixteen at the time. Got a job at Sony as the A and R scout. So A and R is artist stands for artist and repertoire, which basically means you you look after the talent. And you develop the talent. So, you know, your job would be, you know, you go and find the band, you would sign the band to, to, to whatever label you're working at. You would work alongside the band in the, in the creative side. So you'd be booking the studio times. You'd be, you know, with the band and the management company, uh, sourcing possible producers for them, uh, people to do remixes, engineers, that whole process. You, you, you're involved in the, you know, the, the, the 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 album artwork you know the the track listing the, basically the the process from from watching a band unsigned in a pub to yeah. when the album comes out in the record shop and there's obviously a, a lot more involved in it than what we think I think as a, as an outsider you just kind of imagine the industry to be a bit of a glamorous and anarchic playground you've said there's there's a, obviously an awful lot more involved in the day to day job but in terms of the culture the atmosphere what's the reality um, I think <clears throat> years gone by, it was quite a uh, chaotic industry. There was a lot of money knocking around. So there was a lot of kind of waste. There was a lot of traveling in, you know, first class. There was a lot of limousines. There was a lot of chauffeur-driven cars, five-star hotels. You know, I remember putting, I think I charged, it was about £1,700 back to work for a bar bill yeah. after we'd been out one night. And, uh, you know, they worked and even, you know, the accounts didn't even bat an eyelid. It was kind of just signed off. And um, I think as the years have gone on and, you know, with downloading and the, the music industry kind of shrinking, I think that's that's changed quite a bit. I still think there's there's elements of that, the, you know, the old the old kind of lifestyle that went with it. But I think now there's less money and there's more people trying to work and trying to find that money that it's it's kind of it's not. It's not really possible to stay up all night doing drugs or, you know, doing drugs on tour because mm. it's it kind of catches up with you. You're working too hard now. And I think um, drug taking in the music industry could be considered a party that's simply gone on too long. When I say that, that's not my my thoughts. But when you think about how the media portrays people in that industry, it's just often this kind of wild child partying too hard type of image that that's put out there but that's not really the case so 
for you, when did your addiction problems begin? When did you realise there was an issue? I think I've always displayed addictive behaviour from from a very young age. But when I started taking drugs in my kind of, I was like maybe 13, 14 years old, so it's sort of in the early 90s I started taking drugs. Mm. I was working at Creation Records at the time, so I was working with you know bands like Oasis, Primal Scream, um, Super Fairy Animals, and you know a bunch of other bands. And I was 18 years old, 19 years old. Yeah. And I could see then that the the cocaine was was really starting to have an impact on me. I was you know I was struggling to get into work on time. I was struggling to get into work some days. I was starting to have kind of psych, you know, psychotic episodes and, and, and struggle with psychosis and self-harm. And I didn't really understand what addiction was. Mm. You know, I knew that there was an issue with my drug taking and that my drug taking wasn't the same as my peers, but I didn't really understand. And I remember, that, 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 so I was about 18, 19 when I first uh, engaged with my local drug services. Gosh, 18. Yeah. Yeah. So did you ever feel able to discuss your problems with because um, like you said you, it was very different to what you saw your peers experiencing but then we could potentially think that they might have thought what you were going through was normal did you ever feel able to open up about what it was really like for you no no, no I mean this was back in the late 90s and I, th- I you know I think now you know the, the the sort of narrative has changed you know mental health is kind of you know, being widely kind of recognised as as something that needs discussing, you know, especially men's mental health and, you know, stuff like, you know, suicide. And, but especially, but I, I, I mean, and, and even still now, I don't think it's it's still as, as spoken about openly as it, as it should be. But especially back in the 90s, no, it wasn't, it wasn't mm. something that you would talk about. I, I didn't, I, and also as well, I don't feel that I had the, the emotional um, vocabulary or maturity to kind of discuss what was going. I didn't do my, you know, I don't even think I knew what was going on for me. Yeah. So sort of, you know, as a as a, I was a teenager, I was a kid. If I if I don't know what's going on for me, how can I vocalise that to somebody else? Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? And, and within the music industry, it's funny. I, I actually um, I met up with someone that I worked with at Creation, who uh, one of the press guys. I mean, we met up a couple of months ago. It was the first time I've seen him in twenty years. And we went to the football together and we were, we were talking as the game was going on. And he doesn't drink anymore. I don't think he, he doesn't, he's not in any type of 12-step recovery or any, anything like that. He just, he doesn't drink, hasn't drunk for 25 years. And he was newly sober when, when I was working with him. Mm. And we used to luck kind of giggle behind his back. And it was like, you know, he was a lightweight. He mm. couldn't, you know, he was like, it was like a kind of a weakness that he, he had to stop drinking. Yes. You know, you can ha- you can't handle your drugs. Like that was the that was the narrative. And I suppose that's the so when we we're talking about ego before, that's the ego that keeps you in almost denial and keeps you just doing the same thing until you get to a point where like you say you did engage with drug and alcohol services. When when you took that step, I mean you were so young really then, 18, 19, when you took that step you were still working in the music industry. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Would you say that industry is more likely to enable recovery or inhibit it? Um, I don't know. I think that's a, that's a difficult question. I think, you know, I think times are changing across 
all industries, you know, you know, lots of HR departments now are geared up to supporting people with addiction or mental health issues. I think that a lot of people are drawn to the music industry because they feel like it's not real work. There's mm. a lot of fun to be had. You know, there's a lot of after-show parties and there's a, you know, there's a lot of glamour and, and free drinks. And, and I mean, the reality is there's not really that much anymore. Do you know what I mean? But mm. more so, I suppose, than if you worked at a solicitor's. Yes. You know, you worked, I don't know, at some sort of mobile phone company. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I think the type of people it attracts are generally kind of quite chaotic or they're kind of, they're, they're attracted to that lifestyle. And I suppose there's an argument as to um, being a- attracted to that lifestyle and then being in a place where it can, I suppose, almost hide it when it's a problem. I suppose like for you, if everybody around you was doing cocaine anyway, you know, just the the fact that you were coming in late to work, it, it probably just didn't seem like you were going through a problem, just that you were being part of the culture that you were working in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there, there's that, and there's, and you know, there's also the kind of, you know, the the, the train of thought. As long as you're doing your job, yeah. it doesn't yeah. else you're doing. And I think that a lot of creative industries, you know, and probably, I mean, I don't have much experience in in industries that that aren't sort of creative. But I imagine it's possibly the same there as well. In that, you know, it, we don't care what you're doing. As you know, if you find this next oasis, mm-hmm. we don't care. You haven't come into work for two months because you've been sitting at home in your pants doing coke. You, you know, they like as long as you're making your your company money. That's what matters. Yeah, and it was, and for me, it was felt. I mean, I come from a very dysfunctional family, so as a you know, I left home at sixteen, and I'd spent some t- time living in a women's refuge uh, with my mum before that. So I didn't have family around me as I was getting sort of ill, mm. saying to me, you know what, you're you know you don't look well. Why you you know you 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 know you're you're walking around you're waking up in the morning your your you, your nose is bleeding mm. you know why have you why is why have you got cuts all over your your arm you know all this kind of stuff there was no one to say that 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 sort of you know in my immediate circle of, of family and I wasn't getting that from work they I don't know if they didn't didn't feel comfortable addressing it or didn't know how to but you you, you kind of think as a as a teenager. As a child, they've kind of got a duty of some sort of duty of care, mm. you know. And and it was only when I became when I, you know, I remember once coming into work at five o'clock, and um, Paul, I was working with Paul Gallagher, Liam and Noel Gallagher's older brother, mm. and he pulled me aside and he said, "You do realise you're you're not in one of the bands that you you work for the bands, you know." And it's like I'm supposed to be in work at ten o'clock. Yeah, coming in it's like ten to five. You know, and it's, you know, and that, and, and, and it was only when that stuff started happening and my addiction was, was becoming really kind of uncontrollable and just everyone's like, well, I've always got drugs on me. People are asking me for drugs. Yeah. So as a favor, and I want to be liked, you know, I've got this kind of thing where I want to, you know, I want to be, I'm a people pleaser, my low self esteem. I want, I want you to like me. So anything I can do to help you, I will do, even if it's massively inconvenient for me. Yeah. So now I'm spending, what little time I'm in the office, kind of selling drugs to people in the office, selling drugs to people that work locally. Mm. And I think at that point where it became work, we're kind of like, you know what, you, you have to go. Yeah, so you lost your you lost your job. Did you go back into the music industry after that? Yeah, I mean, so I started off at Sony 
And so I was working, I was working at Sony, I was scouting at Sony and that was kind of mad, you know, I'm 16 and I end up in an office with a secretary. <laughs> I don't even know, I don't even really know what I'm doing. You know, I don't know how I fell into the job. I don't know what they really want from me. It was hugely corporate. So I stayed there for a while for, you know, at this time I kind of, you know, I, I, I met Oasis a few times, you know, you just, you meet bands, you're kind of hanging out with bands and doing drugs and having fun and <clears throat> they put me forward for the job at Creation. So I then got that job. And then when I got, I mean, that was my dream job. Mm. You know, you're 18, 19 years old and you're working at the, you know, the coolest record company and probably in the world with one of the biggest bands in the world at the time, mm. you know, and because I was friends with, with their older brother, I was kind of instantly was, you know, we're, we're, we're all hanging out, you know, I'm friends with friends of theirs. I'm going up to Manchester. We're hanging out, you know, Liam Gallagher came out for my 21st birthday. So, you know, all my friends have got, it just, you know, it, it blew their mind. They're kind of introducing me to people and going, oh, you know, oh, he works for Oasis. And yeah. my ego's kind of growing with that. And, but, you know, my addiction's kind of getting out of control and I'm starting to feel suicidal and, you know, life becomes kind of really overwhelming. And then suddenly I lose the job. And, you know, I was kind of, at this point, I was in so much kind of pain and my mental health was so bad that I, you know, all I had was this job and I was defined by my job. That was the only kind of, my whole sense of self and self-worth came from my job and I lost it. Mm. And then suddenly I've got no expense account. I've got no wages coming in. My sense of worth is now absolutely destroyed because I've got nothing mm. and I've got a huge drug habit. So I, I spent the best part of a year sitting in the house just sort of doing Valium and smoking skunk just because it was the only place that was kind of safe every time I went out I'd end up going missing for like three days five days and um I ended up at the Reading Festival and I was wandering around the Reading Festival in the, in the guest area and bumped into a guy that had tried to give me a job a couple of years earlier and he um he said oh how are you doing you're right blah 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 he took my number <clears throat> and he rang me a couple of weeks later and said um you know, what, what, what you're up to, what you're doing. So I'm just, just indoors. Mm. Like, come, come and work for me. So I ended up getting a job at Mercury Records. So now sort of working in a slightly smaller office. Mm. The money's not so good. Um, you know, the label's not quite as cool as the one I was working at previously. <laughs> but, you know, it's a job and it's back in the music industry. But I just, I couldn't, I couldn't manage my addiction. So I'm still doing drugs. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing drugs at work. I'm, I'm smoking skunk in my office. Yeah. You just, I just couldn't keep it sort of uh, undercover. Yeah. And then I got stopped by a police officer a couple of years. I was, I was there about two years. I got stopped by a police officer literally two doors away from, from the entrance to work and searched and arrested. Mm. And they've got me handcuffed whilst they wait for a wagon to turn up to take me away. And people are coming in and out of work that I work with and I'm there in handcuffs and um yeah I didn't you know I didn't last much longer I'm not too sure if if, if my if my letting go was um was attached to that mm. but yeah I wasn't there much longer after that to be honest that was around 2004 so that was just around sort of downloading was really becoming prevalent and yeah. the music industry was kind of under attack I suppose you know money was hemorrhaging money 
the record companies will kind of incorporate each other. So when I initially started working in the music industry, there were, you know, six major record companies. At this point now, I think there was like three. Right. So there was less jobs for more people. And I just, you know, I, my reputation was kind of at a point where it was like, you know, I was known as being, you know, problematic, a problematic drug user. Mm. And I sort of just drifted out of it. And you talked about um, drug use led you to self-harm and, you know, suicidal thoughts. Your mental health was really bad. Tell us a bit about the reality of addiction because, you know, you do see people saying, you know, it's selfish, just stop. But if you haven't experienced it, it's it's hard to really know what it's like. Can you can you explain why the whole just stop doesn't work? Um, I mean, I think, there's many, I think there's many, many reasons why. You know, firstly, I think when, for me, I always kind of felt as a young, as a young boy, as a teenager, I think, I don't know how much that's natural, but, I, you know, I felt uncomfortable. I felt I didn't know what my place in life was or the world. You know, just that kind of confusion and discomfort of mm. being young. And, um, and drugs took that away, mm. you know? And, and made everything kind of okay. It made that, you know, it made that kind of awkwardness that I felt sort of dissipate. And so, you know, something that's fun and something that, that, that does that, why would you sort of not do it more? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and it gets to a point where obviously it's like, it's still working, but it's working with some problems. So you may be missing your day at work or your day at college or whatever it is. Do you, do you know what I mean? Not turning up to, to see your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whoever. Because you've ended up, you end up, you end up going out for a drink at lunchtime, and you're still there at eleven o'clock at night. It kind of, you know, it's subtle that it's like it's fun, it's fun with problems, it's fun with more, more problems, and to the point where it's just problem after problem after problem. But because it worked for so long, there's the, you know, there's a delusion that you know what, it's going to be up, it's going to be okay again at some point. I just need to work out a way to sort of manage what I'm doing I'm doing too much of it or I'm too greedy or I've built up a tolerance so I just that's why I'm doing more yeah you know so when you know so when people, when people say oh you know you, you just stop you're kind of thinking, well, but it you know I don't it's not a problem I don't need to stop it it's you know it's for years it served me for years you know I don't know if if my drug taking saved my life if through my teenage years when I was kind of depressed and felt suicidal if drugs kind of helped me manage that because it is it is seen as self medication, isn't it? I mean, you know, there are there are people out there who, what what do we call it? Dual diagnosis, where you have depression or anxiety, and you're actually turning. I mean, I I interviewed um, Paula Maguire, who was housebound from anxiety, and she was you know getting her hands on as many different drugs, painkillers, and things by shopping around at all the different chemists in Glasgow. And then that created more of a problem. But she was doing that to deal with the mental health problems. And I suppose in a day where the waiting list for therapy or for um, secondary care services for, for mental health problems are, are so bad, so pressured, it's kind of what people are going to do. They're just going to reach out and, and grab whatever they can get hold of to make it stop. Is that kind of what it's like? Yeah. I, th I think so. I think, I mean, you're talking about sort of waiting lists and stuff. You look at, you know, you look at austerity and, you know, the, what, the services they've guided and you're looking at mental health, addiction, you know, as well as the youth services and whatnot, which is possibly why there's 
lots of young men stabbing each other. But, you know, addiction and mental health services certainly have, um, have been destroyed by the austerity cuts. Mm. You know, so it's, but yeah, no, you're, you're, I think you're completely right. It's, you know, it's, at that moment, it, it makes everything kind of okay. Yeah. Obviously, at some point down the line, it exacerbates it and becomes a worse problem. But right now, it's working. For this moment, it works. And, you know, there's sort of, you know, you ask, you sort of, when people think it's like selfish, I mean, there, there is a degree of selfishness to it. You know, I, I took drugs because I didn't like how I felt when I didn't. Mm. You, you know, and the, the consequences of that to friends, family, work, um, you know, that was collateral damage. <clears throat> and as much as I didn't want to hurt people, I didn't want to uh, not be reliable. I didn't want to, like, you know, mess people around at work or whatever. How I felt was more important. Mm. Well, I, you know? and if, you, if you've if you experienced suicidal thoughts and self-harm, I mean, it, it, you know, it's a desperation, isn't it, reaching out for something that takes that away momentarily, even if it's just for the next half an hour but you you've been in recovery for years now what what was it that finally made you stop yeah i've been in recovery since june 2007 do you know what it was i think it was a lot of it was a lot of small things you know as i say uh, you know from the age of 12 <clears throat> all i wanted to do was work in the music industry mm. i just wanted to work with bands and you know i've been very lucky to to have done some, you know, pretty cool stuff. I generally don't talk about it because, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of boring now. You know, it's part of my life. It was a, you know, and, and people who know me know about it. Mm. But if I mention something new that I've, you know, something I've just met, and I sort of, you know, I'd be sitting with someone saying the song will come on the radio, and I say, oh, I've, I've worked on that song, and they get like really, oh, I love this song, and you know, they get really animated, and it's kind of cool to have, you know to have had jobs and been part of something that other people have enjoyed or, you know, that, oh, I was at that gig. I was, I was, at, I, I worked on that tour. I saw him play here. I was, oh, I was there, you know, I, I, it's nice, but mm. yeah, you know, my, my dream was to work in the music industry and at 18 years old, I'm working with Oasis. I'm being interviewed in newspapers and magazines and, you know, I've done a couple of TV interviews and I'm, I'm living the dream. And, as much as that was my dream job, yeah. drugs drugs were more important. You know, I became consumed with drugs, and and everything else went you know went went by the wayside. And you know, I found myself sort of stumbling through my twenties, unable to really do anything. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't. I, everything I did, I ended up fucking it up at some point. Mm. You know, through 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 drugs. You know, through the, my my drug use, and then. In a very short space of time, I found myself living with a bunch of old men in their 50s that were kind of old fellas that I knew from the pub. Mm. Why? They were all degenerate drug users. Their wives had, had thrown them out of home for, you know, being boozers or having affairs or whatever. They were just, you know, they just hadn't grown up. Yeah. And um, then within, yes, yeah, so within about three months, I kind of, you know, I could see that my drug use had become a serious problem, and I tried to stop, but didn't didn't know how. So I'd kind of maybe go sort of two weeks, and then go out, and it would it would all unravel. 
And then a guy I knew hung himself, a guy that I used to kind of drink with, hung himself. And then about three weeks later, <clears throat> um, I was with a load of people and we were drinking and doing a load of drugs. And we'd invited these, we'd invited loads of like people over and these two girls that we didn't really know had come over. And they were sitting at a table doing lines of coke. And my mate said to me, like, oh, you know, he, he chopped out a huge line of coke and he was kind of like, this is a line, isn't it? How you do this? And I, um, I kind of looked at it and I was like, yeah, that's not, that's not too big. Mm. And then the, the girl did it and she collapsed and went into like respiratory failure. Right. And, um, we all kind of rushed around and no one, I'd been up for like, I remember I'd been up for like two or three days at this point and was kind of just really confused. And somehow I, they give, they gave, I got given the, the phone to call the ambulance and I didn't, I, I, did, I couldn't remember where we were. Mm. So I'm trying to get, yeah, I'm trying to get, they, obviously they, they won't dispatch an ambulance until they've got an exact address. Yeah. So I'm trying to work out where we are, trying to find out where we are. It's really weird because before that, because I said I've been up, I've been up doing drugs for so long, it was, it's all very sort of dreamlike. But this, this, this moment is really kind of crystal clear. Mm. You know, I can remember exactly what happened. And so this girl's on the floor, and she's in, she's in respiratory failure, and she's thrashing around, and. I remember kind of thinking, I can't, I can't, I can't deal with this. I, 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 I need a, I need a line. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've tried to sort of step over to have a, a quick line, you know, before I kind of try and help her. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's kicked the table and she's kicked a bottle of beer over onto the Coke. Mm-hmm. And my, my first thought was, the Coke, the Coke's all fucked. And, you know, this girl was like, I didn't really know she was dying, but you knew there was something was wrong. Yeah. I mean, this isn't like an everyday occurrence. You know, I've done drugs with a lot of people uh, for a long time, and this this, this hadn't happened before. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, it all just kind of went went south. I, I remember someone went down downstairs to wait for the ambulance when we finally got the address. They they just left. They didn't even really. They were supposed to wait on the corner and say to the ambulance, they're up there, you know, in the flat. Yeah. They didn't even wait. They just gone. People was wrapping their drugs up. They all they all ran away. Yeah, and it was just me and one other guy left with this girl who now died, yeah. um, waiting for an ambulance. And I just kind of remember sitting there, still sniffing coke, just in the corner, you know, and watching as when the ambulance turned up, watching them, you know, they with the paddles trying to revive her, and and it was horrific. It was horrific. I mean, I was thinking about it the other day. I was thinking, you know, like. This is not, you know, people don't see this kind of stuff. This is not an everyday occurrence and kind of wondering if there's any subtle kind of, uh, uh, not post-traumatic stress disorder. I think that's a bit bold. But do you know what I mean? If I'm kind of carrying anything yeah. from it, you know, because yeah. it was quite traumatic. It was it was a really, tra- you know, traumatic experience. And um, so they, they, you know, they took this girl away, you know, and uh, I carried on using drugs for another few days until I finally kind of collapsed myself and ended up in hospital. And um, I kind of remember coming out of hospital and thinking, you know what, I, I don't want to see this again. I don't ever want to see 
something like this happen again. And kind of the only way I could guarantee not seeing it happen again was to not put myself in that situation again. Yeah. You, you know, it's like, uh, you, you know, but the only control I've got, because if I'm sitting doing drugs with people, I can't control what happens when they've done drugs. I could definitely not see somebody overdose again if I'm not with people doing drugs. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I can control. And um, a couple of, I think it was about you know, a week or two later, I was still smoking loads of skunk, but I <clears throat> managed to sort of drop all the, the, the coke out. I was walking around near where I live and I bumped into a, a friend of mine, a drug dealer. Mm. And so he's pulled his, he shouted, he pulled his car over and I was just wandering around, so I was like, and I was just smoking a joint and I was, and I had my hood up and I was crying. And this is kind of where I'd, I'd gone from. So I'd gone from these kind of teenage, early twenties years of working in the music industry and going on tour and these glamorous parties and meeting all sorts of people. I mean, you know, you're working for Oasis, you, you know, in the nineties, you, you meet some, some, some interesting people. Do you know what I mean? Some really famous people and going from all that to wandering the streets with me hood up crying yeah. in the daytime, you know. And um, he kind of said to me, are you, you all right? And I kind of went, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't think so. And it was the first time I'd been kind of vulnerable, I suppose, or, or been any, you know, anywhere near honest about, you know, where I was at. Mm. And he, he said to me, he goes, give me a second. He's, he's made a phone call on his phone. <clears throat> And he's got off his phone and said to me, I'm, I'm taking you to a meeting. And I, I didn't know, you know, what he was talking about. I just didn't want to be alone. Yeah. You know, I was lonely. I was upset. I just didn't want to be on my own. So I got in the car and, and he, he drove me to a, a 12-step meeting. Mm. And so we got into this meeting and I remember it was a church hall. I'm thinking, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm having this. I'm not, I'm not a religion. I'm not into religion. It's not my thing. <laughs> and, um, we've sat in this meeting. I remember the guy, there was a guy talking and he was talking about being an addict. He was talking about when he started, he couldn't stop. When he stopped, he couldn't stay stopped. When he did manage to stop, all he was doing was thinking about doing drugs. Yeah. He spoke about unhealthy relationships, which is also a big part of my kind of uh, story, I suppose. You know, I don't know how entrenched in a in, in my addictive behavior, my, my toxic relationships were, but there was definitely very unhealthy relationships. Mm. Uh, and he was speaking about all this stuff. And there was this moment where I thought, you know what? I'm not the only person. I thought I was the only person that, that felt like that, mm. that, that struggled like that. And there was a kind of, there was like a power in that moment that I'm not alone, you know? Mm. And, um, They'd like, you know, you, they, at the end of the meeting, they, they give out key rings for, you know, clean time, you know, how long have you been abstinent for? And then they do a white key ring, you know, for anyone who's new, who, you know, who wants to engage in the, in the, in the 12 step program. Mm. And so I just got up and everyone started clapping, <laughs> got this key ring and I felt really good because everyone's clapping and coming up to me afterwards and, you know, saying, well done. I'm not sure what I've done well, but, you know, and I genuinely don't think at the time I really had any interest in, in abstinence. Yeah. I still didn't really understand addiction. What I wanted, I wanted to go back to how it was in the 90s. This was like 2007, right? So I wanted to go back to how it was in the 90s when 
taking drugs was fun. Mm. When I would, I was going out and, and meeting girls and, you know, bringing girls back home. We were staying up all, all night doing drugs together and it was fun. That was what I wanted to do. So I just was looking for a way to sort of get back to that place. Yeah. But the next day, I, um, someone said there was another meeting. So I went there, you know, just because I had nothing going. You know, at this point, my life is empty. I've got nothing. I've got no job. I've, my girlfriend's left. I've got nothing to do with my time. Mm. So it just seemed like a good thing to do. So I went back to that meeting and there was another one like a day or two later. And I just, the next thing I knew, I'd been sort of going for months and hadn't used. Yeah. And suddenly kind of it all started making sense. And then I started looking at my other behaviours around like sex or around shopping. And I could see how my addictive behaviours were kind of prevalent in most areas of my of my life. You know, and yeah. the next thing you know, you're a year clean and two years clean and, you know, life starts getting slightly better. Yeah. Sometimes it gets slightly worse. I mean, I've had some, <clears throat> I've had some quite tough times in, in my recovery. I lost, a, I lost a five bedroom house. Yeah. No, uh, I mean, uh, three months clean. The, I was less like I was living with all these kind of old men that were still, they were degenerate drug users, so I'm sort of going to meetings and I'm abstinent and they're all still using drugs. And one of them ended up stabbing his mum to death Gosh. and leaving his dad in intensive care um, over some mad issue uh, with his children. So that was quite difficult. You know, you kind of come home and your other flatmate says, oh, the, you know, the police are looking for Stuart. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I kind of talk about this stuff quite brazenly sometimes, but the reality is, is that it is, it was all quite heavy stuff. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And if anything, it, it, you know, that, that experience more so kind of cemented my early recovery. It was like, you know what, this, this isn't for me. This is not the life mm. that I did. I, I thought I was going to play up front for Arsenal. I thought I was going to be David Geffen and run my own music empire. I, I don't want to be around people and watch people die and, and, and be around people that are in, you know, that, that are in such kind of, you know, I, mean, I think he was in crack psychosis at the time when he, yeah. <clears throat> when he stabbed his mum. Like, this is just not where I, I envisioned my life at yeah. sort of, I was nine at the time. This is not where I sort of saw myself. And you, I mean, the way you found 12-step recovery was, um, you know, obviously you bumped into somebody and they took you there. And one of the things about a lot of these programs, I can't remember the exact phrase that they use, but then they don't promote themselves, do they? So if somebody was, um, you know, if somebody thought they might have a, a drink or a drugs problem um, and thought that 12-step recovery might help them, how would they find their nearest meetings, etc. What, where, where should they look for that help? I, I, you can look online for a start. You know what I mean. There's also lots of twelve step talks and recovery talks on YouTube. Mm. So if you know, which are kind of quite good if you're not too sure if you're a drug addict or if you've got you know an issue of addiction. Like for me, at my first meeting, I heard a guy talking and I related to so much. 
But if he says, if he also says he's a drug addict, then that's that's what I am because we are just two. We, you know, we are the same. Everything he's saying, I'm agreeing with and going. Yeah, I did that. I behaved like that. Yeah. I think importantly that you know I'm I'm a big advocate of twelve step recovery. I'm a big, big advocate of recovery in general. You know, but there are many there are many ways to recover, not just twelve step. You know, self help groups. There's there's lots of sort of ways. Personally, I found twelve step. Was in, was intrinsic in my recovery. Out of all the things I've done, you know, CBT, uh, you know, talking therapies, uh, dr- you know, local drug services, twelve <clears throat> step recovery for me was probably the one thing that if I looked at anything and had to pick it, that would be it. Listening to other people's experience and how they got through issues that then I'm possibly going through right now, or you know, I'm going through it in two months, and I go, I, I remember hearing someone talking about that and what they did to get through it. I'm then able to apply that to my own life. Um, as I say, generally, by the time you find yourself, uh, or, or you're, you're recognizing that you're, you're possibly a, a, a drug addict, you know, you, you've probably lost your job, yeah. you've probably lost relationships, so you're in a quite a lonely, isolated place. So going to twelve step meetings allows you to 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 spend time with other people, yeah. basically, and socialise. And more importantly, I mean, I got a message off someone yesterday that's you know that inboxed me on Twitter saying you know they're <clears throat> they're basically um, you know they don't want to drink anymore, but all their friends, the only time they ever see their friends is when they go to the pub. Yeah, you know, I you know the people that I was hanging out with that didn't really drink or do drugs like me. They had to go because they got in the way. Mm. Why am I going to go out to the pub with someone? You know, I, I've got three of my, my oldest friends. You know, he had kids quite young. Mm. So he's in a relationship with, with young children. So, you know, in our 20s, he's like coming out to the pub and then going home at 10 o'clock. <laughs> like, I, I no point me even coming out with you because I'm going to find myself at 10.30 ringing around trying to find someone else who's still who's out. Yeah. What I might as well do is is find someone that wants to stay up for two days and drink and do drugs. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? At least then I haven't got to sort of mess around. You know, I'm not risking being left on my own, being abandoned. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? So by the by the end of my drug using, I don't know. I I don't really know anyone that isn't a degenerate drug user like me. Yeah. Your social <clears throat> so, circle became. Yeah. So I have Part no, I have no other real friends. Do, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I've lost touch with everybody, or or they've got sick and tired of me. They're sick and tired of the stealing, the lies, the behaviour, the chaos, all the stuff that comes with addiction. So coming into twelve, you know, coming into twelve step recovery, and and you know, they lots of people will go for coffee after meetings or before meetings and <clears throat> stuff like that. Allowed me to 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 build a new a new social circle up. Mm. You know, of people that do stuff that doesn't involve drinking or doing drugs. Yeah. So currently I'm finding myself, you know, maybe going to the cinema on a Saturday night with people. You know, a bunch of us out from recovery all yeah. go to the cinema or we all go, you know, bowling. I'm not really like a, you know, personally I'm not really a bowling guy, so I go sort of begrudgingly. But it just, you know, it keeps you safe. It keeps you busy. It keeps you... Keeps you connected. Yeah. And so, so there's obviously... Um, the sort of social networks and reducing the shame, the isolation, which so often comes with addiction. But just hearing other people's stories and relating plays such a big role, doesn't it? And 
and with that in mind, obviously, um, you know, you, you've got your anonymous account. But I think if, if people followed you on Twitter, they'd be able to see a lot of you, you share a lot of stories that have that have come through um, the media, don't you? So other people's stories yeah. of their recovery and, and how people can relate. So if people want to follow you on Twitter, what's the uh, what's the Twitter handle they should follow? It's at S-C-R-T D-R-U-G-A-D-D-I-C-T So at Secret Drug Addict. At Secret Drug Addict without the, without the E's in secret. <laughs> somebody, that... had already, somebody had already stolen that handle before I got there. <laughs> well, it's... Uh, so my one's like second best. <laughs> well, it's a very um, popular account i know lots of people engage with it a lot of people find help from from engaging with it i do a lot of work with you know with the help of support sort of neville southall yeah who i'm sure if you're on twitter you you know you, you you'll have come across his account so i do you know i do 10 hours a week on neville's account plus you know the sourcing content myself on my own so I, i'm on twitter you know probably nearly 20 hours a week yeah so it's very sort of consuming. And I've got, you know, I've got young kids and I've got, you know, a couple of different jobs. So it's very time consuming. But I, I think a big part of 12 step recovery is supporting other people and, you know, you know, carrying the message of recovery. You know, I've set 12 step meetings up over the years. I've had, you know, I've been committed to those meetings where I've either been, you know, the key holder or made the tea at the meeting or, Mm. or facilitated the meetings you know I've done lots of I've done voluntary work constantly in the, the the sort of you know nearly 12 years that I've been abstinent yeah and this is definitely the most rewarding it feels good it feels good and it seems to be resonating with people which is the most important thing I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story I think it will go a long way to help people who may also find themselves in in the situation you were in in the past so thank you very much Hey Lucy, thanks for having us. And that's all for this week. If you're interested in more on addiction recovery, make sure you tune into episodes. It really couldn't happen to a nicer CEO and comedian.